Hello and welcome to Cat the Baker. I'm Chef KB. This is episode three. I just want to start off by saying that the kitchen is not, I repeat, not a glamorous place. If that's your motivation for wanting to work in the kitchen, glamour, um, not the right place. I never thought it was glamorous because I knew it wasn't. I started out in the hospitality industry in New York. I worked at a restaurant called Houston's, and I worked there for five years. I started out as a greeter. I did coat check. I was really good at bribes and um, (laughs) getting customers or guests, as we call them, giving guests um, seating earlier than maybe others. The thing with that is now they give pagers. And at the time, we were not allowed to give pagers. We had to write our own codes or descriptions to identify people. And that was kind of crazy because when the bar is packed with over 100 people, how are you really going to find anybody? In that instance, when maybe three tables would open up, I would slide somebody in that offered to make a deal, so to speak. And it was a good side business. (laughs) Of course, we split it with the other greeters that were on. And I would look in the back of the kitchen and the chef was yelling at the assistants. The chef at the grill would be sweating. Smoke was going everywhere. The person making desserts was stressed. And I thought... Nope, I'm never, repeat, never going to work in the back of the house. And there you have it. Never say never. (laughs) So even from there, from Houston's, when I moved to L.A., I worked at the Cheesecake Factory, and I was a server there. Same thing. I thought, nope, never going to work in the back of the house. And then I had my car accident, then I went to culinary school, and everything changed. So despite what you might see on television from Top Chef or any of the hundred other shows, you know, that take place in the kitchen, not glamorous. Honestly, when I watch these kind of shows, I get stressed just watching them because I know the work that goes into it, and it totally stresses me out. So the story has a point because... When I lived in New York and I went to acting school, I had a dream that I won an Oscar and I was wearing an ice blue dress. I, of course, cried and I said this really nice speech to my family. My mom, of course, was in the crowd and I woke up and I thought, oh my God, like, is this is this real? (laughs) Is this a premonition? You know, every person that goes to acting school, I mean, who doesn't want an Oscar, please? Of course, it's involved in politics and whatnot, but to have an Oscar? Okay. Even in culinary world, to have a James Beard, you know, that's the top in the US. I woke up from this dream and it gave me just a spark. You know, it it lit me up and it made me happy. And I was never good at the business of acting. I don't kiss up to people. I just do my work. If that's not good enough, 
okay, bye. You know, I'm not going to watch a celebrity or a producer or director and try and get my way in. You know, I'm just not good at that. Some people are really good at that. I never was. And it kind of made me sick to be like that. If it's in the acting industry, in the culinary industry, whatever, there's always somebody that you work with that loves to kiss up. And I just go the other way. When I started culinary school, I had heard that you can work for the Oscars. And I thought, yes, this is what I want to do. You know, I have watched the Oscars my whole teenage life, my whole adult life. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to work the Oscars. I go to the chef and he says, yeah, just go to the office, sign up. You have to do it early. And of course, it wasn't paid, like, of course. And I got to go. I got a badge. Um, this was in L.A. And it was at the Hollywood and Highlands Mall. There is a Wolfgang Puck restaurant. Wolfgang Puck, Sherry Yard, they were running the show. So we helped and we made and prepped all the food that was to be served after the Oscars. And of course, working in the kitchen is the opposite of glamorous. It's just like being on set when you're working on a show or a movie. Like you sit around for four or five hours, sometimes more, just to say a couple of lines. And you've got like 10, 15 different takes. Makeup goes in between and, and makes you not shiny gets different angles, different lighting, and then you go to the next scene and it's the same thing. That's why I really always loved theater, but I never knew what it was like to be on set until I was in a, it was a horror movie and it was set in a psych ward outside of LA and I played a nurse. I don't even remember, I think it was called The Last One and I was a nurse. I was just there wiping down one of the psych patients and cleaning them. Like, <laughs> that was it for me. And even with that, I was just sitting around most of the day. So not glamorous. And it's the same with the kitchen, except at least in the acting world, you have outfits, you have makeup. So you kind of feel like, okay, something good is going on. In the kitchen, you might as well just wear a sack of potatoes because especially when you're like not a chef and you're a cook, you wear these horrible checkered pants. They're super huge. And this like huge jacket that is way too small or way too big. There's no perfect fit ever especially as a woman, especially if you have hips, like male chefs love to order male jackets for women chefs. And that just won't work. There's a different cut. Anyway, there I am in this not attractive outfit at all. But that doesn't matter because I'm just prepping food, right? And Sherry Yard is telling everybody what to do. And she was like in the zone, pretty stressed. Of course, it's the Oscars, right? And then I see Wolfgang Puck 
in the middle of the kitchen, there's a big leather armchair set up just for him. It's facing this huge flat screen TV where the Oscars, like the red carpet is running. And he's just yelling at people in the kitchen from his armchair. And I'm thinking, what is going on? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? This was my first kind of world into celebrity chefs and how they were acting. It was a different world for sure. I was like, wow. <laughs> and then Sherry Yard brought me to a different location for pastry because, of course, the kitchen is needed for these huge events by the savory side. Pastry has to go to the basement, which, nothing abnormal. Pastry is usually the last thought, you know? It's like every chef thinks, okay, not everybody orders dessert, so they don't really matter that much. That's kind of kind of similar in every location. Anyway, in this instance, I was brought to the basement with like six other people. And there were these mini boxes, these chocolate boxes, all made of chocolate and topped with a chocolate Oscar. And they had these little drawers and you could pull one open and inside were like little cookies, also about to be French macarons, lemon French macarons that I had to fill over 4,500 of them. It started out with like six people and every 30 minutes somebody left. You know, my shift was about 10 hours for free. I was just stuck in this basement. By the end, you know, I had a few hours left. Everybody was gone and somehow it was just me. I don't even know how that happened, but I was filling 4,500 French macarons in this basement and there weren't even other pastry things it was just like a storage room of course right and i thought wow this is definitely not what i thought it would be um hugh jackman was performing that year and my mom loves hugh jackman like he can do no wrong i mean he's a great actor of course he's a great singer yeah it's different if you actually probably get to sit in a chair and watch him versus fill French macarons in the basement. So I did that the whole 10 hours. And then I move to the ballroom where they were setting up everything. I saw, you know, my watch, okay, 10 hours, I'm like leaving. I'm not getting paid for this. I'm super tired because even that morning I had culinary school. And now it's like 11 30 p.m. or something. I'm about to leave and Sherry Yard says, where are you going? You've only worked a half day. And I'm like, um, okay. Like, <laughs> I just left, you know? I mean, people only had to work eight to 10 hours and we were working for free. So I don't know, obviously, for her situation, it was different, but I thought it was odd, you know, to, to hear that. I left and then I saw the taped version of the Oscars and I was so tired. So I kind of went to the Oscars. It wasn't in an ice blue dress and nobody knew me because I was in the basement, but that's my story and definitely not glamorous. I did, however, meet Sherry Yard again over 
eight years later, there was a WCR conference, which is a conference for women chefs. She invited a certain group to have brunch at one of her restaurants in LA, which was a really nice experience. The restaurant was beautiful. It had trees inside of it and an open kitchen with, you know, glass where guests can see what's happening in the kitchen, which it looks nice, but do you really want to see what happens inside the kitchen? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so I ate brunch with her and some other high-to-do female chefs, including Dominique Crenn. I told her about what she said that night at the Oscars, and she apologized, and she said she was pretty high-strung and stressed out, of course. Anyway, it was funny, and then everybody else laughed, because, yeah, as chefs, sometimes we say intense things, and in that moment, you don't really necessarily hear what you're saying, you're just, you just know you have to get this done. The more people that you see leaving, you still have to get these things done. You know, and that means for the chef that they just have to stay longer, which was probably what was going on. But I thought it was pretty cool to see her years later and to tell her that story. At this conference, I also met Barbara Lazaroff, who was Wolfgang Puck's ex-wife. And it was very interesting to meet her and she was super nice very elaborate in the way she dressed apparently because of her wolfgang puck was successful and i thought wow you know it's the woman behind the man wcr was really encouraging for me when i was in arizona i would look for every excuse to go to la at the time i wasn't feeling too good in arizona because, you know, I was helping my mom. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. I was working at the cafe. This WCR conference was just a way to meet other chefs to get encouraged. Going to this conference made me feel good about my profession, about being a woman in this profession. You know, you don't see too many women continuing in the field because either it doesn't pay enough, either it's too much work versus pay, you never get time off. I mean, there's different fields of culinary. There's catering, there's your own business. I mean, there's all kinds of things, but in the end, it really is the passion for it. And to be in this conference with all these other women that have the same passion was really eye-opening because I saw all these other women that felt just like me and that had all these same questions and concerns. It was so nice to be in that community. I also met Elizabeth Faulkner, who's a female chef. It was nice to see these celebrity chefs just being approachable and being easy to speak to and giving guidance. And I think that's important to have role models in the field and to just say positive things to other women in the kitchen. Because everybody gets down sometimes. Everybody feels, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> like, you know, there's moments like that in each job. But it's important to give advice, give pastry advice, to share recipes. You know, it's not all, no, this is my recipe, you can't have it. 
just because somebody has a recipe doesn't mean it's going to come out the same. When I was a culinary instructor in Sedona, I had 20 students. It came out 20 different ways, surprisingly enough. And I thought, oh, my God, like, how can this come out 20 different ways? But it did. You know, it doesn't mean anything just because somebody has a recipe that all of a sudden they're going to rise versus you. You know, it's supposed to be a supportive industry. It's supposed to help other women say supportive words. I hope, if anything, that's what I do to my assistants or that I have with coworkers. Being in this industry is tough. Like I said, it's not glamorous. And it's not for the lighthearted. It's tough to keep getting yelled at and to see the positive side of that. It's tough to go into a walk-in and know you're going to get yelled at when you come out. <laughs> you have to have thick skin. And it's the same in acting. When you go to auditions and you keep getting rejected, keep getting rejected. I mean, how can you build a resume if you don't get jobs? How can you get jobs if you don't have an agent? And how can you get an agent if you don't get jobs? I mean, it's crazy. You definitely have to have thick skin in the kitchen too. There are adrenaline-filled moments. You have to be present. You have to be present all the time. There are knives. There are things that can break your bones, your mixers. You know, if you drop something in the mixer and stop the machine, don't put your hand in there. I mean, there's dangerous things in the kitchen. And on top of that, you work long hours and you're tired. You have to be 100% present. And that is not an easy industry. It's not an easy way to make a living. Are the rewards worth it? You know, for me, they were worth it. And if you stick in the business long enough, you'll know if it's worth it for you. It's important to find inspiration in everyday tasks. It's important to find a really good recipe and make it for a special guest and then get really good feedback. You know, those little things make a huge difference. A lot of the time, when things go well, you don't get feedback. You don't hear anything. It's always when things go badly, you hear it. And that's really negative. You know, even from the small things, you want to know if something went well. You want to know if somebody liked something, not just with the negative things. I mean, those are easy to find, right? If we really want to. So it's important as a manager, as somebody who's been in the kitchen for a long time, to just say good job, to say you did this well. Starting out for me, I never got a good job because the chef even said, if I say you did a good job too much, you're going to get thick-headed and, and arrogant. And I thought, geez, just give me one good job. But that's how it is. That's how the kitchen is. You know, you don't do it for the good jobs from the chef. You do it for the love of the food. You know, you do it for the passion you have for what you're doing. Don't do it for anybody else, because then you'll hate it. After I moved to Arizona, I was asked to go to France with my chef at the country club, and he had never left the U.S., so he asked me if he should pack a gun and I said, no, <laughs> don't pack a gun. <laughs> and um, anyway, random side story. So he asked me to come with him because it was during the time of the Coupe du Monde, which is the most elaborate pastry competition 
um, pretty much in Europe. And I said, yes, I want to go. And this was happening in Lyon in France. We took about a week and a half and this pastry competition was going on all week. And he made reservations at Paul Bucuse's restaurant in Lyon. And Paul Bucuse is one of the most famous French chefs in Lyon. And he started this whole competition in Lyon, France. During the day, I would go to this packed, absolutely packed Coupe du Monde. And all these different chefs from different countries were there competing. And along with all the crowds from all these different countries and everybody was yelling and it was a really cool thing to witness. But it was also as we were waiting to get in, it was so packed and everybody kept pushing and pushing. And this was before COVID. This was 2012, I want to say. But they were making ice sculptures and these entremet cakes. I mean, this was definitely a different level. But it was really amazing to watch. And then in the evening, we went, so myself, a friend of mine, and my chef at the time, and his wife, we all went to Paul Bucuse's restaurant. And he was there to greet us when we came in. Uh, he couldn't say much. I mean, he was pretty old at this point. But he was very gracious and welcomed us in French. And we sat at a table. So what happens is you only have one seating at this restaurant. You have maybe like four servers per table. I mean, nothing goes unnoticed. It was the most high-end restaurant ever. It was beautiful. You had this huge tray of cheese. It was a cart. It was an actual cart with every kind of cheese on there you can imagine. They had some sort of a stomach. Somebody ordered a stomach. It was all puffed up and you cut it open and inside was something else. This was still when I was a vegetarian. I didn't order that. I actually don't remember what I ordered, but I do remember, guess what? I remember dessert. <laughs> and I ordered a rumbaba, which is one of my favorite desserts and I've made it a lot, but I'm used to it not being pure rum. In this case, it was 100% pure rum that this cake was soaked in and it was lit up quite a spectacle. And because it was pure alcohol, it, um, it was a spectacle. <laughs> but the whole evening was beautiful. And of course, dessert came on a tray filled with typical French desserts like meringue and eau flottante, um, one of my favorites that I would have to make at Bouchon in Beverly Hills. Not, though. Not one of my favorites, but it was super popular for some reason. Anyway, back to Paul Bacuse's restaurant. It was a memorable evening, and they even had kind of a fake kitchen where regular guests could take pictures with chefs. It was so bizarre. Like, I still have this picture, and it's so funny, and it's beautiful because there's all these pots, these copper pots hanging from the walls, and... Everything was spotless and there was this huge wine cellar and we could go inside and inside of it was a statue of Paul Bacuse, which was kind of random, but <laughs> it was still an amazing experience. And then before this trip, looked into taking a course in Italy. It was close to Lake Como. 
So what happened was when I worked in Italy around culinary school, the chef that I worked for, she wanted me to do traditional Italian desserts. And of course, I did traditional French and German and American. And she gave me this cookbook. It was by Pierre Paolo Magni. She said he's the best chef. He's the best pastry chef in Italy. It was her cookbook, and she let me borrow it to make these desserts. Yeah, they were, they were delicious. They were just traditional Italian desserts and made with a modern twist. So I used this book so much that when I left, the chef sent it to me, to my home in L.A. I was already homesick from being in Italy. And then she sent me this book, and it meant so much to me. It was such a beautiful gift, and I was so thankful. I looked in the back of the book, said where this chef teaches, and it was in Lecco, um, not too far from Milano. I decided I'm going to take a class there. So what I did was I sold my wedding ring and my engagement ring because obviously I was divorced, and I thought, yeah, I'm going to use these rings to travel because ultimately that's what I love. I don't need these rings anymore. So I sold them and I booked my flight from Lyon. Well, actually I took a train. I took a train from Lyon, France to Milan, Italy. I basically for 10 days took the same train and stopped. One day I stopped in Verona. Next day I stopped to take this class for two days. And it was a gelato class, a class with semifredi, and it was all in Italian. But obviously the chef was demonstrating it and I understood what was happening. It was such an amazing experience. And Pier Paolo Manni was there and I told him as best as I could in my broken Italian about this story of the chef giving me this pastry cookbook, his cookbook. He was so delighted that he gave me his whole folder, his whole binder of his recipes, you know, and I thought, wow, like, this is, this is a story, this is an event to remember. And it all started because I worked in Italy. I came back with this binder and it just meant so much to me. And then I continued on this train to Garda Lake, and then I ended up in Venice. And Venice at the time, the carnival was going on, and I had no idea, actually, that it was going on. I just wanted to go to Venice. I spent a few days there and saw the sights, and then I flew from Venice back to Arizona. And when I came back, I just felt so excited. I felt excited that out of a bad situation, my divorce and my failed marriage, I made something memorable out of that. And I was proud of myself for organizing that whole thing. I love food. I love to travel. Because of food, I was able to go to the Coupe du Monde and meet Paul Bocuse. And also that night, going back to Paul Bocuse's restaurant, Thomas Keller was actually there. And my chef that I worked for at the country club, he was a huge fan. That's basically why he hired me, because I had worked for Thomas Keller. And he said, you have to introduce me. And I said, well, I don't know him like that. 
you know, like <laughs> I worked for him, yes, but not like on a personal level. And, um, and I said, okay, all right, I'll introduce you. And we walked over to his table and there were other very prominent chefs. I could tell, you know, I excused myself and I said, you know, I wanted to say hello. I worked for you in Hollywood, in LA at Bouchon. I made it here as a spectator to the Coupe de Monde. And this is my chef that totally made his night, you know, but Thomas Keller was very gracious as he always is, shook his hand, you know, shook my hand. And he said, why did you leave? Why did you leave me? <laughs> I said, well, I moved to Arizona, you know, but it was just such a memorable night and the whole trip was totally worth it. Traveling abroad like that is very nerve-wracking for me, but I just decide something and then I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And I do. I always do it. I actually surprise myself at all these adventures I've had and all the things I do. It's my love of adventure. Like I, I want to experience life. I don't want to just work all day, work all night and not enjoy the things that life has to offer. Going to these competitions and seeing all these chefs, of course, most of them at these competitions are men, which is so interesting because when I went to culinary school in pastry, it was basically 25 students, 20 of them were women, and there were, you know, just five men. And then the people that end up going into the actual industry for pastry are mainly men, which is so bizarre. I'm just used to working with mostly all men, which um, I guess my brothers trained me well <laughs> to be able to deal with that. But I find it so interesting. And I think it's changing slowly. There definitely are more women in the kitchen these days. The thing is, when you leave culinary school, you have all this debt. You know, it's very expensive. Basically, you start at the bottom. So the jobs you get in the beginning are very low paying. Paying off these loans is tough. You know, these creditors, they want your money. They want their money back. Basically, the longer you stick with it in the kitchen, the more money you will make. But there's definitely a phase where in the beginning, it's, it's all passion. You're not making money there for sure. And even when I started out and I was making such low money because as a server, you know, I would make good money. And then when I was starting out in the kitchen, I thought, wow, is like, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> but then I tell the stories that I just had and then these experiences and every place has its pros and cons. Every place you work, you know, some things are good, some things are bad. But it doesn't mean that if you go to the next place that all of a sudden everything's better. That's just part of dealing with where you are and making the most of it. And then when I moved to Switzerland, that was a huge thing for me. I felt stagnant at the time. I wasn't too happy working where I was toward the end. I didn't feel appreciated. I wasn't getting a raise. I thought, you know what? I need something else. I need more. I need to feel like I'm learning something. I'm bettering myself. That's where Switzerland came in. And it was right before COVID. I mean, who knew that was going to happen? 
And I made it. I found a, a cheap ticket that went to Zurich. I was only supposed to be there for three months. I was supposed to work in the factory, see all sides of chocolate making. And then I was going to continue on to Greece and Spain and Morocco. And I had all these flights planned. And then a month into Switzerland, everything goes down with COVID, which was crazy. And all my flights were canceled. And I ended up being in Switzerland total of a year. But because I went to Switzerland, the owner, Elias Lederach, you know, he won the award for the Chocolate Masters, which is a huge deal. And he offered me the position in New York on Fifth Avenue to be the chocolatier. And it was because I was offered that, that I was able to continue to stay in Switzerland. Because obviously, during COVID, I didn't want to go, the height of COVID, I didn't want to go to New York. I mean, I would look on the news and see what was going on there and all these mass graves. And I thought, um, no, I'm going to stay in Switzerland a little bit longer. I was there for six months. Then I flew to New York, was there a couple of months. And then I came back to Switzerland to practice some things for the live production that they had which was to make custom heart designs for customers. And I came back to Switzerland to practice writing in chocolate on these hearts. And it was a good experience. But again, when I planned that, I didn't know what would happen. You know, I just thought, okay, I'm just going to go there for three months, visit these other countries, and then come back. And who knows what then? And of course... Nothing is as it seems and everything changed. And that was so crazy. Like even when I came back to New York, it was a ghost town. I mean, the streets were completely empty and I'd never seen that before. And even people said that during COVID, nobody was on the streets. For me as a chef, it's been hard to get ahead in the pastry world in big cities because there's just so many people. You know, there are good paying jobs, but big cities sometimes tend to pay less, even though the rents are higher. But there's so many people there that they don't have to pay more. You know, if this person doesn't do it, well, this person will. Basically, you're just replaceable from that perspective. When I was in New York and working as a chocolatier, I wanted something else. I wanted to get back into pastry. And I had an interview with Dominique Ansel, and I didn't think it would be him personally interviewing me. I thought it would be, you know, his assistant, whatever. But it was him, and he had a thick French accent. And sometimes, again, I didn't want to have him repeat himself because I couldn't understand everything he was saying. It was crazy because the amount he expected you to work did not meet at all with what you were paid. That's hard, you know, because maybe in my 20s, that would have been okay. But then in my 20s, I wouldn't have had enough experience, you know, or just coming out from culinary school, I wouldn't have had enough experience to get a job like that. It's like places want all this experience, but then they don't want to pay enough for it. That's a tricky match to find especially in New York City. And then that was another reason 
to come west. Here's a random note. Why do chefs have mainly crappy kitchens at home? Mm. (laughs) And then other people that aren't chefs have the most beautiful kitchens and they barely use them. Right, because people that work in the kitchen don't really get paid very much and they work long hours. Yeah, that's the answer. That's why when I lived in New York, I found this apartment. It had the most beautiful kitchen and I was super excited. It had a KitchenAid oven and it proofed my bread perfectly. It had five burners, gas, and it was lovely. (laughs) I don't have that anymore. It was short-lived, but I made the most of it when I had it. That doesn't mean I won't have something nice in the future, but it was just such a thought. Like, I know people that have beautiful kitchens and they don't even cook or bake or do much in the kitchen. And I thought, wow, what a waste of space. My point for this episode is if you want to do something and you're passionate about it, you can make it happen. You know, when I set my mind to something, I do it no matter what. Yes, certain things might take longer, but in the end, it's amazing what we as humans can make possible. The things that we can create with our minds and our hands. And yes, I'm still passionate. I'm passionate about when a cake comes out perfectly. I'm passionate about new desserts. And I'm mostly passionate about when guests don't order a brownie or a bread pudding. (laughs) Because there's so many options out there of different desserts. But just think about something that you desire, something that you desire, but you're completely scared of. Just put it out there. Just put it out there that this is what you want. This is what you want to do. Think of that every day and you will get an answer. There will be a possibility, a chance, a different way of thinking. And as I look back, I see that. I see my stubbornness and me being strong-willed and being scared. But I also think that because I have moved a lot as a child and lived all those fears, I also think it made me extremely flexible now as an adult. And sometimes it's so weird because I've moved so much. It's weird not to move for a few years. And I think, oh, like... Is, is this what it's supposed to be like? Like, am I supposed to move around or not? It's almost a different side of thinking for me. And moving is almost normal, you know, which for me is hard because I'm a collector. I love to buy touristy things when I'm on vacation. I paint, I hang up my artwork, I hang up my photography, you know, so... I have all these kitchen things and kitchen aids and pastry things, and I'm actually the worst person to move. <laughs> and I love cookbooks. I have so many cookbooks. I have no place to put them, basically. I guess my future is I'm thinking about a nice big kitchen where to put all my cookbooks and my gadgets. Thank you so much for listening today. and. I hope on some level I inspired a different way of thinking or different possibility. Until next time, I'm Chef KB, and this is the third episode of Cat the Baker. 
please join me on Instagram at Chef KB or on YouTube at Cat the Baker. <laughs> <laughs>